Let us begin. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the ability, the permission, the anxiety, the, the longing, really, to study scripture so that we can understand better what it is that you want us to know, so that we can come closer to you, because we realize and we know that uh, the Holy Scriptures, particularly the New Testament, are really your way of communicating to us, uh, not only by the words that are printed on the page, but by the inspiration that we get uh, as we go through and read and study. So we ask your blessing on our efforts uh, this morning and from now on as we go through the rest of this session. And we just give you praise and thanksgiving and all thanks in Jesus' name. All right, today we're going to be starting chapter 8. Uh, of the Acts of the Apostles, up until now, we've had sort of various stories, uh, important as they were, but they were more for setting the scene of what is now to come, beginning with chapter 8 and particularly with chapter 9. Uh, the whole idea of the Acts of the Apostles is really to kind of tell us how the Holy Spirit has worked through mankind, the apostles and all of the disciples at that time, and even later through the martyrs and uh, many other uh, people, to spread the word of Christianity throughout uh, the Mideast region. And we will see right here in chapter 9 how it is now spread from uh, the area surrounding Jerusalem where the main events of Christ's uh, death and resurrection took place and Pentecost Sunday as well, but how it spread. And as we see in chapter 9 when Paul, or Saul of Tarsus as he was originally called, uh, wants to go to Damascus uh, to bring in Christians from up there. And uh, we see that Christianity now has spread quite a ways away from uh, Jerusalem for a couple reasons. And we'll get into some of that in a few minutes here. But the important thing for us to see is the importance of the church and the message and the purpose of the church. Remember, the Jews were originally established as a vehicle to, for God to voice his ideas, his concerns, his plan of salvation, and to begin it through the Jewish people, and it's to be carried out to all of the other nations. And unfortunately, that didn't happen. And so now, that is the mission and the role of the church, is to take the message of God's love and God's salvation to all mankind. And we, being part of the church, we are the church, really. Um, when you use the word church with a capital C, it's not talking about buildings, you know, bricks and mortars. It's talking about people. Those people who make up the church. 
And the church's mission really is to take the voice and the teachings of God through Jesus Christ to all mankind. And that hasn't changed. That was the mission of the apostles to begin with, the disciples and their descendants all the way down to today. So we, each one of us, has a role in God's plan of salvation, and we call it evangelization. When I was going to school, you know, I always say way back in the last century, the last millennium, um, seems like so far back I don't even remember, but anyway, I do some things. Uh, the good nuns used to talk about vocations. Well, the word vocation has a lot of different meanings. And everybody in their, in their thoughts can sort of interpret that word in a different way. I don't like to use the word vocation. And uh, our Protestant brothers and sisters use the word calling. Well, that's got a different understanding and an interpretation by a number of people. What I like to call it is our role in God's plan of salvation because it puts it together with meaning. It shows a purpose. Each one of us has a role in God's plan. He has left it open. In fact, in Paul's letter to the Colossians, he says, um, I make up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. When I first read that, I said, no way. What could be lacking in the sufferings of Christ? But of course, when you study that and read what he, what Paul is really saying and meaning, he means that in God's plan of salvation, yes, Christ was the very pivotal role. But each of us has a role. Each of us has a little part to play in that role. And that is what we make up. In other words, Salvation is not completed until the end of time, even though Christ's role was the most important, the pivotal part of that plan. The door has been left open for each one of us to fulfill something. It's like a mosaic. When you see a mosaic, you see all these beautiful stones. But if you pick one stone out, you know, it might be just so-so. Or it might be real glittery, or it might be, you know, solid black, which has no meaning in itself. But when you put it back, it has a purpose. And that is the way we are. Uh, St. Peter tells us in his first letter, we are like living stones, like a, the stones living in a living mosaic. And we represent a part of that picture. Now, if you, and I remember years ago, after the earthquake in Southern California, uh, there was a beautiful church uh, near where I lived, and it had a really very beautiful mosaic outside over the front door. And after the earthquake, or during the earthquake, many of those stones popped out of that mosaic 
And when you went by and looked at it, particularly from the car and sort of a quick look, you didn't see the picture. All you saw were the black dots where the stones were missing. And you see, that represents really what I'm saying, is it took all of those stones, whether they were brilliant or just very plain or common, to make that picture. And the picture wasn't complete until those stones were put back. And that's the way we should look at the church. We are part of the church. If we don't do our part, it's like one of those stones missing from the mosaic. And that is what we're to get out of this book of the Acts of the Apostles. How this mosaic was kind of brought together in the beginning. And the trials and tribulations of those people who uh, were very instrumental in the original bringing together. Uh, as we go on, we will see some of the uh, problems that particularly Peter and the apostles had to wrestle with because God is now asking them to change their culture, change their way of thinking from the culture of the Jews to now a new culture uh, that has caused the Jewish way of thinking about the law, the law, uh, and when we get further into particularly uh, the teachings of Paul and some of Paul's letters, we will see where he is telling us uh, that you don't have to observe the Jewish law as it was written and as it was exercised because many of the laws that developed after the time of Moses were never intended to be religious rules and regulations or religious observances. For example, the dietary laws. The dietary laws were plain common sense of what hygiene was at that particular time. They were never, those hygiene rules were never intended to be religious laws that were so binding by these people that they could hardly breathe. Uh, the Jewish law, which stems from originally the Ten Commandments, but exploded into 613 uh, laws, uh, most of which are in the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, were not written down by Moses. Although they are attributed to Moses, it is more of an, an, the influence of Moses rather than the actual uh, writings or the decrees of Moses. We don't have actually any records of Moses actually writing anything. All right, The whole book of Deuteronomy wasn't written until about the 9th century B.C., uh, six or seven hundred years after Moses. All right? And it's the compilation of all of those things that had developed and were attributed to Moses in that six or seven hundred years. Uh, so there's a, a nice little history behind that, but we don't want to get into that today. But the point I'm trying to make here is that 
we are now studying the beginnings of how the church developed and migrated from a little group of people in Jerusalem and spread to where we are now over uh, a billion people throughout the world. Chapter 9 begins with a rather... um, I'm sorry, chapter 8, yes. Thank you. Keep me straight now. Remember, I'm always... several weeks ahead of you so that sometimes I kind of forget. All right. Uh, It says here, on that day, there broke out a severe persecution of the church in Jerusalem. Well, on that day, what are we talking about? The day that St. Peter, I mean, excuse me, St. Stephen was stoned. All right. Now, we got to take a look at that why was he stoned? And why is, does it say here a persecution broke out? As I said just minutes ago, the Jewish people were so ingrained in worshiping laws that if anybody broke those laws, particularly publicly, then that was, to their way of thinking, an affront against their faith and their beliefs and of God himself. All right? So, in the persecutions, particularly when we get into chapter 9 with Paul, he thought he was doing the right thing. By persecuting these people who were following the new way of Christ, and particularly when they started inviting non-Jews into their group and bringing them into the temple. That was a big, big sacrilege to their way of thinking. So the persecution was not based on a hate against Christians, it was based on those people who the Jewish people thought were desecrating the temple. Does that make sense? All right. And of course, that developed probably improperly, but never developed in their mind so that later on, they didn't care what they believed, or what they followed, as long as they were not a Jew, they were going to be persecuted. So, remember, we think about the Roman persecutions, and we hear in history books and movies and so forth about Roman persecutions, but the persecutions really started with the Jewish people who refused to accept Christ, and refused to even open their minds and their hearts to what the apostles were teaching. And that went on for some time. The Romans didn't get involved until they thought or saw where it was going to create something like a civil war. And they didn't want that. All they wanted was peace. They didn't care uh, who was causing the problems. They weren't interested in the religious 
differences between the Christians and the Jews. They just wanted it settled. And so that was why they didn't, they came in around the year 66 AD, after Christ, uh, and started to put this rebellion down, you might say. And it created such a problem that they just wiped out everybody. All right. Now, in the meantime, as we read in um, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24, or 25, or forget which, Jesus warned the people that there would be this kind of persecution. And when it started, he said, leave. Remember, you've heard this story, I'm sure, in, in church many times, and it's sometimes difficult to understand, you know, those people who are on rooftops, don't let them come down and take anything out of their house. Get out and flee. And mothers who are nursing, and you know, those you've heard all of that. And what he's referring to is the effects of the spread of Christianity and the opposition of the Jewish people. Alright? So, with all of that as sort of uh, a preamble or a setting the scene. Let's let's go on here. On that day, of course, the whole idea of the Jewish people stoning Stephen, which was against their own rules. You see, the Jewish people were not permitted to execute anyone. First, by the commandment, "Thou shalt not kill." But secondly, by Roman law, they were to go through the Roman courts before they were permitted to execute, and technically they were not permitted to execute. It had to be the Romans who would do it, which, of course, we saw back at the time of Christ, how they manipulated the Romans into taking over the execution of Christ. All right. All were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made a loud lament over him. Saul, mine meanwhile, was trying to destroy the church. Entering house after house and dragging out men and women, he handed over uh, for imprisonment. And that is because he thought that he was doing the right thing. He thought he was doing something for God. Uh, We're going to have a few stories here that sort of emphasize how Christianity is now spreading beyond the area of Jerusalem. Now those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Thus Philip went down to the city of Samaria. Now it's interesting that it says Peter went down to the city of Samaria. If you are in Jerusalem, Jerusalem is really south of Samaria geographically. But in Jewish writing, Jerusalem was always up from anything and everything and everywhere. For two reasons, partly because 
their thinking was Jerusalem was the mountain top of God's sanctuary, the temple. And to some degree, thinking in a, in a spiritual sense, that was true. But geographically, and I wish we had the whiteboard here, I could tell you, Jerusalem geographically is on a plateau. If you think of the Mediterranean Sea, let's say the Mediterranean Sea is here. If you go from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, you're actually going down, and then you come back up to Jerusalem. There is a valley in between. And then there's a plateau on which Jerusalem, particularly the old city, actually sits. And then if you're going from Jerusalem, say, down to Jericho, which is further east, you're going down some more. So if you had the opportunity to look at uh, the area where Jerusalem is today, but as it looked back three or four millennia ago, you would see this plateau, and that is why they always say it's up. Because wherever you are in other, other um, cities or towns, you are always below the level of Jerusalem. And of course, theoretically, uh, or spiritually speaking, it was always that Jerusalem was the sanctuary of God, and therefore it deserved to always be mentioned as up above. All right. So even though uh, Samaria is north of Jerusalem, that's why uh, this is a cultural thing. It says that <clears throat> well, I lost my place here. <clears throat> Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. With one accord, the crowds paid attention to what uh, was said by Philip. And this is Philip the deacon now, not Philip the apostle. When they heard it, they saw signs that he was doing. For unclean spirits crying out in a loud voice came out of many possessed people, and many paralyzed and crippled people were cured. There was great joy in that city. Uh, Two things are happening here. The deacons, the seven deacons, you know, beginning with Stephen and Philip and Precorius and so forth and so on, uh, were originally uh, commissioned and ordained for waiting on table, tables and doing a lot of uh, work other than, um, or, or works to allow the apostles to continue the preaching and teaching um, of Christ's message. But gradually, they were given the power to work miracles as well. That's how the Holy Spirit is really spreading Christianity through these kinds of people here. Now we have another interesting story here. Uh, Simon the Magician. A man named Simon used to practice magic in the city and was astounded by the people of Samaria claiming to be somewhat great. All of them, 
from the least to the greatest, paid attention to him because he probably was uh, a magician with the power of the devil working through him. But when he recognized the power that Philip had, and perhaps Stephen in the past, he wanted some of that power too, because he recognized the value of it for himself. And so he says, uh, well, he's he's asking for uh, the same power uh, that they have and uh, the Holy Spirit. And so we have this whole uh, sort of back and forth between um, Philip and Simon here. So this man is, well, I'm going to go back up. All of them, from the least to the greatest, paid attention to him, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. They paid attention to him because he had astounded them by his magic for a long time. But once they began to believe Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, men and women alike were baptized. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, became devoted uh, to Philip. And when he saw the signs and mighty deeds that they were occurring, he was astounded. And now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God. Now remember, the Samaritans, people have often asked me, well, why were the Samaritans so hated? Remember the story of the good Samaritan? He was sort of uh, somebody who was ostracized and all of that. It goes back to the 8th century B.C. when the Assyrians, the uh, northern neighbors, uh, overran the northern kingdom of Israel right, and took most of the people captives and took them back to Assyria. Not Syria, but Assyria, all right, which is the uh, area of sort of eastern, northeastern Turkey today. In their place, that left a real void of people in the area of Samaria within Palestine, okay? In their place, they brought in all of the jailbirds and the ne'er-do-wells and the discontents and anybody that they didn't want in Assyria, and they replaced them or relocated them to Samaria. Now, this is 700 years before Christ. Over a period of time, those people sort of assimilated partway into the Jewish community. But they were never fully Jews. They were never really accepted by the Jews. And over a period of time, they became hated by the full-blooded Jews. All right? Uh, that, again, is another... Uh, sin, you might say, against one of the commandments, but they didn't see it that way. They felt that they had the right to put these people down. Uh, now, you might think that that is an unusual situation of taking captives out of one place, 
carting them off to another and taking the ne'er-do-wells, uh, the jailbirds, etc., the miscontents, the, this, uh, the in, infirm and the injured and so forth and so on and bringing them back. But that's exactly how our state of Georgia was settled. Anybody know that? Our state of Georgia was settled by all of the jailbirds from Britain. That's not the only place where that's happened. Australia was also uh, originally populated by the same kind of thing. Yeah. So, this isn't as uh, unusual as it might sound. Anyways, let's go on. When Peter saw that the Spirit was conferred, I'm sorry, when Simon saw that the Spirit was conferred by laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. He offered the apostles money and said, Give me this power too, so that anyone upon whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no share or lot in this matter, for your heart is not upright before God. Repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, your intention may be forgiven. For I see that you are filled with bitter gall and are in the bonds of iniquity, and so forth. And I'm going to don't want to go on for the rest of this. But you see, even back at this time, you had these people who were accepting Christianity for the wrong reason. And we still have a lot of that today, unfortunately. People who will convert to Catholicism or Christianity uh, but use it for the wrong purpose. And even doing the right thing for the wrong reason is still wrong. Or you will have people that do a lot of work for the church, but it is to fulfill their own desires, their own needs, and little regard for God himself. Then the angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, Get up and head south on the road that goes down from, goes down again from Jerusalem to Gaza. In this case, it is south. Gaza is south of Jerusalem. Uh, the desert road. So he got up and set out. Now there was an Ethiopian, Ethiopian eunuch, uh, a court official of Candace, that is the queen of the Ethiopians in charge of his in, their entire or her entire uh, treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home. Seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. The spirit said to Philip, go and join up with the chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and said, do you understand what you're reading? And the Eunuch uh, replied, how can I, unless someone instructs me? So he invited Philip in to get in, and this is this fancy chariot now, and sit with him. And this was the scripture passage he was reading. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, 
And as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, uh, justice was denied him. And who would tell of his posterity? For his life is taken from the earth. Uh, This is chapter 56 of the uh, letter of Isaiah. Then the eunuch said to Philip in reply, I beg you, about whom is the prophet saying this? About himself or about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture passage, he proclaimed Jesus to him. And as they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, there is water. What is to prevent my being baptized? And then he ordered the chariot to stop, and Philip and the eunuch both went down into the water, and he was baptized. And when he came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no longer, or no more, but continued on his way rejoicing. Philip came to Azotus and went about proclaiming the good news to all the towns until he reached Caesarea. So, there again is a way that the Holy Spirit is working through Philip and through this eunuch. Uh, The eunuch, the word eunuch in itself, as you probably understand, uh, he was a court official of uh, the Queen of Candace. Candace, yeah. Uh, She's sort of a follower of the Queen of Sheba, you might say, in the country that is now Yemen. And that is, again, how Christianity spread from one place to another. Is it getting too warm in here? But you understand these kinds of stories, what they're all about. They're really here intended to show us how the Holy Spirit is working through, in this case, both Philip and the eunuch to develop the spread of Christianity throughout all of the area. And that is the whole purpose of that kind of story. All right, now let's get into some of what I call the juicy part of this book. Now Saul, Saul of Tarsus, still breathing murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, that if he should find any men or women who belonged to the way. This is what Christianity was originally called, and it meant the way of Christ, the way of Christ's teachings. That finally turned off up there. The way of Christ's teachings, where they did not depart from being Jews, but they wanted to assimilate the Jewish teaching and the Christianity, uh, the teachings of Christ. Uh, Unfortunately, because of the uh, exclusivity of the Jews and their thinking, they would never allow that. Um, But that's a little off uh, in the near future. 
Damascus now is roughly 150 miles north of Jerusalem. So if there are disciples up there uh, and enough disciples to create uh, sort of a communication system that it gets down back down to Jerusalem, obviously there might have been there must have been quite a few people up there, all right, accepting um, Christianity. Now Damascus. Uh, which is actually in the country of Syria today, was part of Palestine at the time of Christ. Now, this map isn't the greatest. But anyways, uh, Damascus was part of Palestine at the time of uh, the broader boundaries of Israel. Okay. On his journey... This is Saul of Tarsus now. On his journey to Damascus from Jerusalem, he was nearing the city of Damascus, and a light from the sky suddenly flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, sir? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, for they heard the voice, but could see no one. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. For they had to lead him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was unable to see, and he neither ate nor drank. Now let's back up a little bit here. When it says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is Saul really persecuting Christ? That's right. In this case, the words actually mean that he was persecuting the church. You remember the Catholic Church is an extension of Christ himself. So many people put the church and Christ in two separate boxes, and there the twain shall meet. Unfortunately, that is not correct. The church is an extension of Christ through the apostles, through the disciples, all the way down through the bishops and all sincere, or sincere committed members. All right. So that is what is meant here. When he's saying, why are you persecuting me? He means persecuting the church. Okay. It says, and there was disciples in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a, version, in a vision, Ananias answered, Here I am, Lord. This is, Here I am, Lord, is a very common phrase throughout the Bible, but very much so in Luke's writings. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and ask at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. 
he is there praying, and in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias, you, uh, come in and lay his hands on him, that he may regain his sight. But Ananias replied, Lord, I have heard from many sources about this man, what evil things he has done to your holy ones in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to imprison all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for this man is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. And I will show him what he will have to suffer for my name. So Ananias went and entered the house, laying his hands on him, and he said, Saul, my brother, the Lord has sent me, Jesus who appeared to you on the way by which you came, that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, things like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. He got up and was baptized, and when he had eaten, he recovered his strength. Very dramatic. Now, this is mentioned three times in this book alone, and a couple times in some of Paul's letters. That is because of the importance of this particular event. Just now, the next sentence is one that I disagree with. He stayed some days with the disciples in Damascus, and then he began at once to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. All who heard him were astounded and said, Is not this the man who in Jerusalem ravaged those um, who called upon his name? and came here expressly to take them back in chains to the chief priests. But Saul grew all the stronger and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus, providing that this, proving that this is the Messiah. All right, we got a problem here. If this man was so filled with hatred, for those people who followed the new way. He probably didn't understand what they were believing. It was just that it was something different and against his beliefs of being a very strict Jew. Okay? How could he then immediately get up after three days and, uh, you know, remember he was blinded for three days and hadn't eaten or uh, consumed water uh, during that time period, so he was probably a little weak and wobbly. Uh, so how could he get up and start preaching about Jesus when he didn't know the first thing about Jesus? Okay. Problem. Okay. Now, let's go over to Galatians chapter 1. Paul's letter to the Galatians chapter 1. Now, this is an, an exact answer to either my question or the gentleman back there, but it gives you part of the story that is missing in Luke's writings, all right? Chapter 1 at verse 11. Now, Paul is writing to the Galatians sometime later perhaps 15, well, not quite 15, 
I would say, uh, five to eight years later. All right. And he says, I assure you, brothers, the gospel I proclaimed to you is no mere human invention. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I schooled in it. I came by revelation from Jesus Christ. You have heard, I know, the story of my former way of life in Judaism. You know that I went to extremes in persecuting the church of God and tried to destroy it. I made progress in Jewish observance far beyond most of my contemporaries. In my excess of zeal to live out all of the traditions of my ancestors. In other words, he's saying he was a very devout Jew almost to excess. All right. By the time, but the time came when he who had set me apart, this is part of your answer back there now, he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his favor, uh, chose to reveal his son to me that I might spread among the Gentiles the good tidings concerning him. Immediately, without seeking human advisors, or even going to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before me, I went to Arabia. Alright? So he went into a retreat after that three days of being blinded, and when he got up and was strong enough, he didn't go out immediately in Damascus and start preaching. He went to Arabia. All right, now we're going to find out in a few minutes what happened in Arabia. It says, later, I returned to Damascus, and for three years, you see, then when he returned to Damascus, that's when Paul picks that up, uh, I mean, sorry, Luke picks that up in the Acts of the Apostles, and says, then he began to preach about Jesus Christ. Okay. Three years after that, I went up to Jerusalem to get to know Cephas, with whom I stayed 15 days. I did not meet any other apostles except James, the brother of the Lord. I declared before God uh, that what I have just written is true. Now, Go over to the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians. In chapter 12, it says, I must go on boasting now, however useless it may be, and speak of visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who, 14 years ago, now this means that he is writing this second letter to the Corinthians about 14 years later after the event of his conversion. I know a man in Christ, meaning himself, who 14 years ago, whether he was in or outside his body, I cannot say, only God can say, a man who was snatched up to the third heaven. I know this man, whether in or outside of the body, I do not know. In other words, 
whether he was snatched up physically or just like a vision mentally, or was it a, you know, a, a I do not know this. Uh, I know this man, whether inside or outside the body, I do not know. God knows. Was snatched up to paradise to hear words which cannot be uttered, words which no man can speak. About this man I will boast, but I will not, I will do no boasting about myself unless it be about my weakness. And even if I were to boast, it would not be uh, folly in me because I would only be telling the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone think more of me, and I won't go on for the rest of this, that's not uh, important to what I'm trying to preach now. The whole idea is, when Paul is in Arabia for roughly three years, he receives visions and revelations of what Christ's teaching is all about. He doesn't go into any details, but you have to understand that it must have been a tremendous infusion of information because Paul is the first of the great theologians of the church and all of his writings after this period of time are filled with the beginnings of all of our theology, particularly uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, all right? But all of them have a great amount of theology in them. And this did not come from anyone else except through these visions and revelations. And it was after this period of time that he went back to Damascus and began to preach where it all began. Now, as to why, why would Jesus choose this particular man? Well, if you read most of the letters of Paul, you will see that he is both a Roman citizen as well as a Jewish citizen. His mother was Jewish, but his father was Roman. And therefore, he had dual citizenship. He was not born in Palestine. He was born in Tarsus, which is up in the northern, uh, well, it is up uh, in the southern part of Turkey, far north of Palestine. All right. Part of the reason and part of your question back there is that he was chosen partly because of his dual relationship or dual uh, citizenship. Also, he was not only bilingual, but probably trilingual. Also, because he was very well known and accepted, whereas most of the apostles were uneducated men, except perhaps uh, for Matthew, who was a tax collector and therefore had to have known how to read and write and so forth, but we have no knowledge of how well educated the others were. The Jewish, you know, let's put it this way, the apostles, the twelve apostles, 
were all Jews partly because of the culture. If they were anything else other than Jews, they would not have been accepted. Also, they were to counterbalance the twelve sons of Jacob from the Old Testament. So you have a number of reasons why the apostles were all strictly Jewish men, but Paul was both Jewish and Roman. And it was for his versatility, you might say, the fact that he was uh, or had dual citizenship, was not born in Palestine, and could converse in at least two, if not three languages, perhaps even four, because remember, Hebrew and Aramaic were the common languages of the people around Jerusalem, but Greek was the common language uh, north in the northern parts and throughout the rest of the countries, and particularly uh, of Italy, or Rome, I should say, at that time. Uh, Greek was the common language and Paul could speak all of those. Whereas probably that was not one of the capabilities of most of the apostles. So you have a number of reasons. But as it said here, we just read that, that he was chosen even before he was born. And this is true because many of the important people within the Old Testament were also chosen before they were born. Uh, John the Baptist was chosen before he was born. Christ himself was obviously chosen before he was born. So that is not an unusual situation through uh, because of, of uh, biblical personages. But does that kind of set the scene to give you where Paul got all this information? And you can see how if you read solely the book of the Acts of the Apostles, you wouldn't have gotten that. All right. But I think it, it's necessary because uh, one of the first questions that came to my mind is, where did you get all the information? If he makes a big deal about never meeting the apostles or spending any time with them. And then when he does, when we get to chapter 15 you'll see that he takes uh, Peter to task and criticizes Peter publicly. And that, of course, is a big no-no in this culture. Um, and you'll see that even even in the early church, some of the bigwigs didn't agree with each other. And that's true today. Okay. All right, let's go on. Chapter, let's, let's say, uh, do chapter 9, verse 23. Continue from there. After a long time had passed, the Jews conspired to kill him, meaning Paul, but their plot became known to Saul, and now they were keeping watch at the gates day and night so as to kill him. Now, why did they want to kill him? For the same reason they wanted to kill Christ. All right? Because he was teaching something that now was becoming against what the Jewish people believed in. And later on, 
he really puts down in some of his letters this whole idea of observing the law rather than loving God. Um, if you read Corinthians, the first letter of Corinthians, chapter 13, he really puts down the Jewish law because the Jewish law is not based on the law of love. And chapter 13 is all about love. Now, in Damascus, they want to start killing him. It says, but his disciples took him uh, one night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. Then Barnabas, this is the first time we meet Barnabas, Barnabas took charge of him and brought him to the apostles, and he reported to them how on the way he had seen the Lord and that he had spoken to him, and now in Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. He moved about freely with them in Jerusalem and spoke out boldly in the name of the Lord. He also spoke and debated with the Hellenists, but they tried to kill him. And when the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him on his way to Tarsus. That's back to his home. Then it says, The church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria was at peace. Well, it doesn't sound like it, you know, if all of this persecution was going on. I think uh, Luke is just a few pages off base here. Uh, it was bear, being built up and walked in the fear of the Lord. And with the consolation of the Holy Spirit, it grew in numbers. Well, that part I can understand. But in peace? Hmm, no, I don't think so. Okay. Now we have a couple more stories over here uh, about Peter healing Aeneas and Lydia and then uh, Tabitha. But I want to go over to this story of Peter restoring Habitha to life. This became known, I'm going down to uh, verse 42 on the page 49. This became known all over Joppa and uh, many came to believe in the Lord, and he stayed a long time in Joppa with Simon. This is Peter, of course. Now, this rising of Tabitha, would you call that a resurrection? you got to be careful. No. It is restoring this woman back to her normal life. It is not a resurrection. The whole idea of resurrection is something theologically entirely different. Yes, that's the important point there. The lady just mentioned that the reason or the difference between Christ's resurrection 
and the others is that Christ is now uh, gone through the process, you might say, of appearing before God the Father and then reappearing to mankind in a glorified body. Whereas the others were restored to their normal, natural, earthly bodies. That's the big difference. Karen? Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. Karen just mentioned that when the Jews killed anyone, it was outside of or infractions, really, of their own law as well as Jewish law. But most of the time, the Jews, or the Romans, rather, didn't pay too much attention uh, unless it created a, a scene uh, and. Well, that's, yeah, what Betty is saying is that, as I mentioned earlier, Paul was chosen because of his education and his dual citizenship, etc., whereas the other apostles uh, were probably far less educated. And all of that is true. But the other apostles were... primarily chosen because of its balance against the 12 tribes of Israel and the comparison there rather than a comparison with uh, Paul. You had a lot of Jewish culture and history behind the choosing, or choosing I should say, of the 12 apostles. Remember the 12 tribes of Jacob were representatives of each of the tribes. One man, <clears throat> excuse me, one man from each tribe. Uh, the apostles were pretty much the equivalent of that, although the distinction of the area and the tribal uh, rule at the time of Christ had disappeared. They had long disappeared. Got two hands up here. Jim, uh, or Gene? Yes, but remember, they probably didn't write their own Gospels. They preached, you know, but they probably did not do the actual writing. Yeah. Um, Matthew, mm, even there, I would doubt it. Uh, he was educated to a point, but not to the degree that we find in Matthew's Gospel. The, the grammar, the structure um, is way above, you know, just a, a normal education. Jim? Well, that's pretty much what Betty said. And, and yes, I agree with you to that point. Uh, but I don't... I, to, some, to some degree, I, I accept that. Uh, Christ chose simple people because it was easier to teach them something brand new and for them to accept it, to put it that way. All right. Paul was chosen again because of his education, his citizenship, uh, the fact that he wasn't a Palestinian Jew, and so many other reasons. Yeah. Yes, sir? I have two seemingly unrelated questions. 
In the time of Jesus, there were very few educated people. Those who were educated uh, were either very much uh, indoctrinated in the Jewish faith and followed it to the letter of the law, or they were completely uh, agnostics, you might say, and didn't care. They were because there was a, a lot of um, business people. Not, let me use that word uh, in general. So you had that kind of separation among the elite. The majority of the people were uneducated. The uneducated had to follow the educated people because they didn't know any better. Uh, You had an entirely different concept of education at that time as opposed to today. You don't find any Jewish person that doesn't have a pretty good education. Yes. Yes. And that's because they stick to themselves. They help each other. Uh, there's a great deal of pride in education and promotion of oneself. You don't find any Jewish person in the welfare lines or the, the soup kitchens or anything like that. Okay. Uh, I, that's as good an answer as I think I can give you. Now, the second question, uh, again, for... No, no, and, and I would doubt very much if we do. Yeah. Now, what is in Israel, not the Vatican, but in Israel, is a museum called the Book of the Law. That was established around 1950 to contain the Dead Sea Scrolls that were brought to life and were available. The Dead Sea Scrolls were originally found in 1947, uh, and they came from the caves around the, the Dead Sea, obviously, and they were found by nomadic shepherds. And as soon as they were discovered, uh, a lot of them were spirited out of the country because of their value. However, most of them have now been deciphered, photographed ten ways from Sunday, and published. I have a book that contains all of the known published up to the time of its publish, uh, publication. All right. But in the book of, or the museum of the book of the law, is a copy of, again, a copy of the complete works and writings of the prophet Isaiah. 
And that's interesting because that is one of the prophets that the Jewish people most ignore. Because of chapters 53 through 60, which talks about the suffering servant referring to Christ. As far as any original copies of the Gospels, to my knowledge, there are none. All that is there in the Vatican are copies that do date back uh, to that era. But the, no one says that they are originals. It's my understanding that Stanford claims to have some part of the original history. That could be true. That could be true. Yes. Yes. Yes, Cora. Uh, Jesus as the Son of God. Uh, yeah, what Korah is saying is that the definition of resurrection is God actually resurrecting himself. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Yeah. Yes? Someone asked me that last week, uh, and not necessarily. But he was able to read from the scrolls. And the yes. Now, that's a good point, because if you go back and think about the unusual circumstances under which he was born, the angel appearing to Mary and later to Joseph, obviously, as Jesus grew up, they weren't going to keep this secret from him. They would have explained to him as much as they understood and then encouraged him to read the scriptures to see how the unique circumstances of his birth matched up to a lot of the prophecies of the Old Testament. And so obviously we know that Jesus could read and write from various incidents in the Gospels. And so with that, he would have understood a lot of that. That was not normal for the average Jewish person at that age and time. But then again, as we know, he astounded the temple rulers at the age of 13, and partly it was for the same reason. Mary's encouraging him to study the scriptures. Now, the synagogues, which were houses of prayer and study, made it available to those who wanted to come in and study. And so that would have been uh, available to him. But there were very few of those. And most of them, you know, in each young boy, it was never the women. Uh, it was always the young boys who were 
allowed to come in, but few of them did because they had to work to help the family. Okay. Any other questions? Yes, Chet? Jesus himself in a revelation changed it to Paul. All right. Yeah. Well, throughout the Bible, there, and Chet's question is, why did, why was Saul's name changed to Paul? And that's an interesting question, and it fits in with the culture of the scriptures. Throughout the Bible, there are several people whose names were changed. Starting with Abraham and his wife Sarah. Their names were Abram and Sarai. Alright? Their names were changed. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. You had several people's names who were either changed or who were dictated by God through angels before they were born. John the Baptist, for example, his name was the whole idea of name, as we've said before, refers to the whole person and sometimes to the role of that person. When a person's name is changed by God, it means that that person has a special role in God's plan of salvation. Obviously, Paul did. That was why it was changed. Peter's name was changed, yes. That's another one. Okay. There was, there's several, if you go out throughout the Bible. The whole idea of name is extremely misunderstood in today's understanding of scripture. Name was so important that people did not give it out freely just to anyone. It was protected because it represented a part of the individual. And if he or she, but mostly men, gave a part of their name or gave their name to somebody, it means like you were giving them part of yourself. So, remember, when you say, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, you're really asking for the presence of God, the presence of the Trinity, to bless you. That's what you're doing. Because you're asking for the person of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, to be with you and bless you. And so many people are just going, yeah, yeah, you know. Or I've seen this too, you know, at church. I don't know, you know. Shaking off flies or something. Uh, but unfortunately, people don't understand. The sign of the cross is a prayer. And it should be done with reverence and with understanding. You know, this doesn't work. Yeah? Good. That's right, yeah. In the name of the Father who made me, the Son who redeemed me, or the Spirit and the Spirit who guides me. Yes, very important. Yes, ma'am.
it was yes that was a common way for people who were messengers of God in one way or the other to get their writings down on parchment or whatever material they use hmm Pepperus, yes uh, it was not unusual for many of the writers you know you take Aristotle and all of the Socrates and all of the great writers dictated most of their writings to people who were educated and taught how to write and what they would do is you know they would put the proper, proper grammar and so forth in there not necessarily edited but yes in some ways that doesn't change anything the being inspired by God inspired those who actually did the writing as well yeah but you're right uh, most of the writings of all of the Bible were probably written by somebody other than the person's name who gets the credit yeah now, that doesn't mean and we know that uh, Paul did not write actually physically write most of his letters because in one of them at the end he says now I'm taking the pen in my own hand and signing this thing see uh, Matthew probably taught very well but somebody actually took all of this information and wrote it up John the same way Luke Luke is uh, a little more questionable because first of all Luke was a Greek and the Greeks were very well educated so it might be that Luke did his own writing but it was not a common thing there were scribes that was the job of the professional scribes okay. I think we've gone over our time period a little bit let's end with a prayer in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for giving us the opportunity to really get into the scriptures and sometimes even behind the words to find out the real meaning. Help us then to understand how to really dig into the meaning so that we can understand what it is you want us to hear. We ask that you always inspire us to hear what you want to hear rather than what is set up here. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.